The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. New episodes every two weeks. Find Historical Blindness on most podcast players and platforms. It began long ago. Two young boys in an American town riding their bikes to school and Little League practice. Over the years, the boys became fast friends, united in their love for stories where things would go horribly wrong. Pour yourself a strong beverage and buckle up. You're in the shallow end with Schnepley and Toth. I don't know if I mentioned or not, JG, that um, the TV in our living room was starting to go out a few weeks ago. Actually, a few months ago. Are you guys okay? <laughs> Talk about a first world problem. This TV <laughs> went up in the living room. I, we moved into this house in 2005. I think it went up in 2007. So it's been, it was a Vizio TV. It was like 45 inches. And at the time that we got it, it was cutting edge HD TV. Sure. But after a long life, um, it was starting to act up, and it started to give us signals that it was that it was on its way out. You would turn it on, and it would it would sort of crackle and hum, and you had to give it a whack on the side <laughs> the side of the TV. Why to is get that it. like an it's an instinctive thing for a guy, isn't yeah. it? If, if if your TV or a major appliance isn't working, our first instinct is to whack it, whack it, hit it with a wrench. By God, that'll scare it into submission. And that worked for a number of months, but we finally realized, you know, this is this this cannot sustain. This is not a good this is not a good thing. If you need to have a TV, you can count on that your football game or your whatever is going to be viewable. Right. You need to have that. So we got a new one. What'd you get? And we got a fifty-five inch uh, LG uh, OLED. Uh, oh, four K. It is just nice. it's. And so I, I'm now just obsessed like a caveman with a shiny object. I just will watch absolutely <laughs> anything on this yeah. TV sure. because the picture quality is so ridiculous. It's, it's, just, it's just stupid. I go just can't to, believe it. Go to YouTube. It, it, this is your first 4K TV, Correct. I'm guessing. Okay. Yep. Go to YouTube and just type in 4K. And some of the stuff they have, actually, they have things in, in 8K. Of course, it doesn't matter if you're watching it on a 4K screen. But right. I will, I'll just watch a bee pollinate a flower for 45 yeah. minutes. Yeah. Because the picture quality is just so stunning. I'm just, I'm just gobsmacked by it. 
it's just it's just amazing. I wish I wish this podcast was in was in 4K because <laughs> I would I would even watch us record this if it were, well, if the picture quality were that good. That's saying a lot. <laughs> No, I get it. I get it. Yeah, boys and their toys. I love, I can spend a day at Best Buy. That's where we got this. It's funny you Is say it, that. Yeah, okay. Well, there you go. I will just go there and wander around and spend an afternoon just looking at TVs and stuff. That's that's my happy place. Good for you. I love that that's Best Buy. I know you like to spend a, a good portion of time at Costco. That's Costco's your, your, my happy place. Your happy place. Do you enjoy going to like home improvement stores like Home Depot or Lowe's? I do. I do indeed. Oh, me too. Yeah. That's, that, next to Best Buy, that's my favorite store to go to. I, I love to go and just wander around Lowe's with a sandwich dreaming of home improvement <laughs> projects that I'll probably never do. I love the power tools. That's my favorite oh. section of Lowe's or Home Depot. I could just stare at power tools and you think, yeah, I don't need a belt sander, but boy, if I were going to get one, that's the one I'd get. Look at yep, that belt yep. sander. Oh, boy. look at the one next to it. Now that's Milwaukee. Is that is that a better brand than DeWalt? Hey, sweetie, come look at this Black & Decker skill saw. <laughs> she, she doesn't share my enthusiasm no, for power No, my wife tools. doesn't either. Yeah. I also really enjoy, like, you know, outside of Lowe's or Home Depot, they have the uh, shed displays. They have those oh, sure. g- gardening sheds all constructed and put up and on display. Yeah. Oftentimes, in my mind, I've wondered how easy it would be to steal them. <laughs> not, <laughs> not that I ever would, of course, but I got to be honest with you. I enjoy figuring out how I would do it if, if, I, if I were going to. And my chosen method is, is really surprisingly low tech. Uh, I would just come in with a flatbed truck and then I'd roll the shed onto it using logs that were laid oh. underneath it kind of like how the you know like the how the egyptians built the pyramids right you know, just moving one log to the front and rolling it over and taking the one from the back and moving it uh, these are the late night musings that led me to this story that i have for you today all right our hero's name is edward and his story takes place in march of 2000 in albuquerque new mexico now edward had been eyeing not the sheds outside of Home Depot, but the utility trailers. Oftentimes, they will have some utility trailers for sale there, and they're too large to bring into the store, so in the parking lot, they'll have various models set up for display. You you see stuff like that all the time. And you know, it's interesting. Every time I go there and I walk past those trailers and those sheds on the way into the store, I find myself staring at both those items, the trailers and the sheds, and thinking, oh, man, imagine that. Imagine having a trailer like that. Think of what you could, think of where where you could go. Think See, of what you could a, carry with that. It's a guy thing. The difference between you and me, that's your thought. My thought is, how can I steal that and get away <laughs> with it if I were going to? Every time I look at one of those sheds, I think, you know, you could make that into a studio. You could have a little outdoor yep. studio. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, I'm with you on that. So he's staring at the utility trailers outside of a Home Depot store in Albuquerque, and gall darn it, Edward needed a utility trailer. Don't we all? The problem was, Edward didn't want to pay for one, so he started planning in his mind how he would, in fact, steal this trailer from, from the Home Depot parking lot. Unlike me, however, he fully intended to act on his plan. So after spending a fair amount of time weighing out his master plan, um, the uh, the day came to execute it. It was, in fact, March 31st in the year 2000. Now, I'll give Edward points for keeping his plan simple. 
This in simplicity can be, you know, an important thing when when you're talking about committing a crime. You don't want to get it. You don't want to make it too complicated because then there's too many moving parts and something will happen. Simple's always better. His plan was he was going to just drive into the parking lot in broad daylight with his Toyota pickup truck and just hook it to his truck and drive off. Like maybe nobody would notice. Right. It's not actually, it's not a bad idea. If if you saw something like that going down, you'd probably think, well, that guy's probably supposed to be doing that. He probably just yeah. bought it and he's, I he's think, driving it away. I think that's what he was going for. I'm not sure. But yeah, steal, no one's going to steal a utility trailer in broad daylight, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, whatever his, his thinking was there, it worked. He got out. It was a little bit after 12 noon. When Edward drove on to the lot, he carefully backed his Toyota pickup truck up to the trailer, hitched it up, and quickly drove away. Not too fast in the parking lot, of course. He didn't want to draw attention to himself. No, you got to look like you belong there. Until he got onto Griagos Road, and that's when he floored it. <laughs> he got a couple of blocks down Griagos Road when he learned that he hadn't securely hooked the trailer to his truck in his haste. He had uh, not hooked up like the safety chain. And so it starts swinging back and forth behind him and he loses control of his truck and the trailer and he crashes just a few blocks away from, from the Home Depot. Oh, buddy. Edward got out of his vehicle. He went around back. He finished unhooking what was left of the uh, trailer hitch (laughs) and he left the trailer on the side of the road and drove off. Now, bear in mind, this was in the middle of the day. And plenty of people had witnessed this crash. So probably his best move really at that point would have just stay there, take your lumps from law enforcement and, uh, you know, you screwed up. But instead, he just took off. Now, you're probably thinking he went home and parked in his driveway and was arrested shortly after based on eyewitness reports. That's what I would think. Somebody surely would have would have copied his license plate number down, but that's not what happened. Instead of just fleeing the scene or going home, he thought, geez, I almost pulled it off. I should try again. No. So he goes back to the same Home Depot, a couple of blocks away. <laughs> Take two. Drives in, hooks up a second trailer. This time, he made sure that the trailer was securely attached. Way to go. And that the safety chain was on. He wasn't stupid or anything no no this is a seasoned seasoned trailer thief now a seasoned trailer thief indeed he also decided that he was going to watch his speed this time too he was learning as he was going smart so he carefully signals left takes a left out of the home depot parking lot and heads back down grigos road when he crashes a second time less than 75 yards away from the first stolen trailer What the hell? So he gets out, unhooks the second trailer, (laughs) leaves that on the side of the road, too. Again, it's lunchtime traffic. Dude. And within 15 minutes, he has crashed two different trailers in broad daylight, (laughs) 75 feet from, from each other. And interestingly, nobody alerted police. Nobody called it in. I can't believe this. So Edwards is thinking, hell, third time's the charm. So Sure. He goes back to Home Depot a third time, and he begins to hook up a third third trailer trailer. to his pickup truck. He's pretty much cleaned out their inventory at this point. (laughs) But but he's become a master at hooking them up. So he's there, and he's hooking up the uh, trailer. He's, He's a pro at it now. And while he's doing that, back out on Grigos Road, Deputy Sheriff Scott Baird was driving along. All right. And he notices two wrecked trailers in the ditch. He thinks, hmm, this is strange. 
So he gets out of his patrol car to investigate, and he walks over, and he checks one trailer, and he's walking over to the second trailer, checking out the situation, trying to uh, figure out what was going on here, and as he was doing that, according to Detective Bill Webb, Edward drove by with his third stolen trailer. (laughs) And as he does... The trailer's beginning to swerve back and forth a little bit again, and the fender of the trailer clips the deputy sheriff's patrol car on his way by. Oh, no. Not good. Not good. It continues to sway back and forth, so he slows down to regain control. He's learned his lesson. You should never speed when you've got a trailer hooked to the back of your vehicle. Now, Deputy Sheriff Baird witnessed this. He jumped in his patrol car and he began pursuing Edward in his, in, in his truck at a speed of a, a less than 20 miles per hour. It was a leisurely paced chase, reaching speeds as high as 25 miles per hour. <laughs> because Edward, you know, he had a trailer and he'd already crashed two of them. He wasn't going to take any chances. No. He wasn't going to pull over. He refused. Picture it, if you will. You're maybe you're waiting at a bus stop or you're in a parking lot getting out of your car and you hear sirens and you see police lights coming down the road. And as they approach, it takes so long for them to get there because they're only going like 20 20 miles miles per hour. hour. (laughs) You've got you've got this guy in a truck slowly pulling a trailer with a police officer right behind the guy, almost on his bumper with his sirens and, and lights going. And this goes on for miles. It goes, it goes on for miles at a snail's pace, if snails, in fact, went 20 miles per hour. <laughs> and towed trailers. After about 20 minutes, Edward finally gives up. He safely pulls over to the side of the road, this time not wrecking the third trailer. He was arrested and charged with three counts of motor vehicle theft, all of them committed during his lunch hour. <laughs> Good Lord. That's incredible. Now, I love me some bungled car theft stories, and and I came across this one as well about the same time, in the year 2000. A couple of guys in England thought they'd take up car thieving. Uh, They saw a really nice, fancy uh, sports car in a multi-story parking garage, and they were able to jimmy the door open and hotwire it. And they began bringing the car down the ramps, and they got to the security gate, you know, the little arm that, that comes yeah. down and you got to show your ticket to get out. And Right. Yeah. Well, they didn't have the ticket, so they decided to just, you know, floor it and drive through it at a high rate of speed. But what they didn't realize was, and they were quickly to learn, was that this was not the exit gate. This was a safety barrier. <laughs> they also didn't realize they were still on the ninth floor of the parking <laughs> garage. <laughs> The trajectory was described in the resulting news articles as a 40-foot parabolic arc (laughs) before it it smashed into the parking lot below. Don't you just love a happy ending? Nine stories. Yeah. (laughs) My source information. Uh, The Albuquerque Journal, the Darwin Awards, and an article written by Michael Fleet in the Daily Telegraph. Dear Lord. You're in the shallow end with Schnappley and Toth. You're not like the other kids, are you? 
You've always been a bit of a renegade, a rebel, the one who never played well with others. And to this day, you don't drive your car well with others either. Well, if we got a city for you, why not move to Glendale, California, where driving is truly a sport for the bold. Speed limits? <laughs> That's a good one. In Glendale, you can drive as fast as you want, wherever you want. Stop signs? Merely a decorative splotch of red on a big metal pole. Blow through that thing, Mr. Man. You're in Glendale now. Red lights? Well, how long's it been red? Because if it's under four or five seconds, you can make it through that intersection. After all, you're already driving 70 miles an hour in a 35 zone. And that whole, you need a license plate on your car bullshit? Not here, sir. Not in Glendale. There's a reason we have the highest car insurance rates in America. If you drive like a bat out of hell, you belong right here. Glendale, California, where the rules are just a suggestion. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the host of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. We just had the pool drained and replastered with these stories. Isn't it beautiful? You're in the shallow end with Schnepley and Toth. Our email address is lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. This is from a gentleman named Doug Thompson. 
He says, greetings, Schnebly Toth and all the shallow enders out there. I was introduced to this podcast by my lovely girlfriend. Hearing the story shared by other listeners brought to mind a particular night from my high school days. This tale has a bit of length to it, but I'd like to share with you all my experience in the shallow end. Some night between 2006-2007, I was in my room in the basement of our house. I'm sitting in front of the TV watching something on my PlayStation 2 when I hear an extremely loud noise and I'm knocked out of my chair. Dazed and confused, I hear my parents run in from the backyard yelling to get out of the house, so I book it up the stairs and out to our emergency meeting spot. As I get outside, it looks like it's snowing heavily despite not being particularly cold. We quickly realized that we were seeing... Not snow, but house insulation. You see, the house behind us had exploded, right? Wow. It wasn't until later we learned that the man in that house had gone through a divorce and lost custody of his kids, so his plan was to kill himself by filling the house with gas and simply lighting a match. Oh, good lord. Well, the blast was so powerful that the shockwave pushed away the air, which prevented anything from igniting except for the gas line, which was now shooting fire into the air. We were told that the blast was felt in the town seven miles away. Way. Wow. At this point, we'd gotten ourselves and our neighbors who needed to break a window out as their door had gotten warped. We all got to relative safety. At this point, my dad decides to see if there's anyone back at the now pile of rubble that needs help. He recounted to us that he had to steal his nerves as he expected to find pieces of bodies. Luckily, his fear would not be realized. As he got to the site, there were no bodies, but there was one man in the middle of what used to be the house. The man's attempt at suicide had failed. In the following days, while we lived at a hotel, we learned that the man had survived because he was in the basement. And the force of the blast could go only up and out relative to his position. I'm sure he was knocked senseless for a while, but the only injury he suffered was from stepping on a nail as he was being helped out of the rubble. Oh my God. We lost our house for a while since it was less than 100 feet from the blast. The roof was lifted and slammed back down, which caused structural damage. I'm sure other houses suffered the same or worse. The fire department told my parents that the only thing that saved our lives were the three pine trees between them and the blast. After a couple of weeks in a hotel, we found out a place to rent while our house was being rebuilt. That's where the story ends. If you have any questions, let me know. I can see if we still have pictures we took of the damage. Your podcast is excellent. Look forward to a long run. Thanks for being awesome. Your shallow end friend, Doug. Doug, I want to see pictures. Yeah. We want, that, uh, we want pictures, pal. That sounds... Yeah. That's... Wow. That must have been terrifying. That sounds see, crazy. you know, if, if you're going to off yourself, uh, do it somewhere where you're not going to off other people as yeah. well. Yeah. Better yet, don't off yourself. You can <laughs> get help. That's a good rule. That's a great rule. Also got a... Uh, Got a letter from uh, Sterling Jones, who says, Hey, y'all, I was listening to the episode where you're talking about the guy clinging to the back of the semi driving down I-35 in Oklahoma as I, an over-the-road driver my in my semi, was driving <laughs> on I-35 in Oklahoma. Another trucker. I was heading the opposite direction as the driver in the story. I'd just gotten through Dallas heading to Shawnee OK. Oklahoma. But man, that story had me dying laughing. Y'all keep my 11 hours of driving a day highly entertaining. I appreciate you all. Sterling Jones. I love that name. Isn't that well a great done. name? Well done, Sterling. We've gotten some pretty cool uh, some pretty cool names from people. Uh, and again, the, uh, the address is lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. All right, my friend. It is your turn. I see from... Looking at the clock on the wall, that it's, that it's my turn to tell you a story, Jethro. <laughs> you know the adage, anyone can start a war, the hard part is stopping one? Oh, yes, yeah. Well, it turns out the same can be said for rainfall. What, you say? Let me explain. I learned an interesting word in researching this story, pluviculturist. Pluviculturist. Isn't that a cool word? 
It's very cool. And I've never it, heard it, of it before. It just rolls off one's tongue. <laughs> You've met my friend, the pluviculturist. <laughs> Senator, meet my pluviculturist friend. A pluviculturist is a rainmaker, one who tries to oh. induce rainfall. Like those old-timey guys that would go around during a drought and like shoot skyrockets into the atmosphere. And, this is uh, exactly our story, JG. You're okay. you're absolutely you're you're so prescient. <laughs> well, I'm no pluviculturist, but uh... <laughs> so it turns out since the beginning of time, humans have sought to stage direct the environment, and over the centuries, their methods for trying to control elements like rain have gotten more sophisticated, maybe even outlandish. People have tried to dance. The rain, blast precipitation from the skies, like like Jethro was just saying, give the atmosphere an electrical wake-up shock, or even seed the clouds with chemicals to bend them to their will. And that pseudoscience was later dubbed pluviculture, or man's attempt to artificially bring about rain. And the guys who would try these things, and again, always men, see a pattern here, <laughs> walked a tightrope between science and con artistry. Now, one of the most famous of these rainmakers, or moisture accelerators, as this gentleman preferred to be called, was a guy named Charles Hatfield. He was a proponent of the smellmaker school of weather control. <laughs> okay, explain, please. He concocted, get this, a secret and proprietary blend of 23 chemicals. And for a small sum, he would release into the heavens from a high tower these chemicals that he swore would bring down the rain. And he was famous for saying, I do not make rain. That would be an absurd claim. I simply attract the clouds and they do the rest. Okay. That's a perfect out for him if it doesn't work. Hey, you know, I brought the, I brought the, uh, the clouds. Yeah. Can't control the clouds. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> what do you think? I'm some kind of nut job. So his business, Charles Hatfield, his business boomed for over a decade until the end of 1915 when he received his biggest commission to date, which was a contract to provide rain to the thirsty city of San Diego, California. Now, the problem was not that he failed to dispel the drought. The problem was that he was a little too successful. What? See, he had promised to fill, I know, he had promised to fill a reservoir in San Diego within a year. But less than a month after he began his ministrations, the county was deluged <laughs> with rain. Valleys had been level. In fact, 20 people had drowned. Oh, my God. So while Hatfield was either very lucky or in the wrong place at the wrong time, depending on how you look at it, he was been forever connected to the flood of 1916, which is still considered one of the worst weather events to strike the city. So let me back up here. This guy was born into a, a farming family in 1876, and it was in the kitchen of one of their Southern California ranch homes that this, this kid first began playing with chemicals, trying to figure out how he could do this. So maybe Hatfield was driven by this, this love of science, or because his his family knew a lot of farmers and how important rain was to that occupation, that he was very familiar with the importance of rain. But either way, by 1904, this sewing machine salesman had come up with what he thought was the perfect blend, those 23 chemicals that he actually began selling his service 
to farmers. Now, his his business proposition was as follows. He guaranteed he would bring about showers within three hours to five days of releasing this chemical concoction. Now, one man said the gases smell so bad that nature reigns. It's in (laughs) self-defense. He charged 50 bucks to do this, but he swore it would work. And by December of 1904, he was actually starting to claim some successes. And he said the 20th test of his system had proved a perfect success. I think it has been clearly demonstrated that I can bring rain. So he's now starting to get newspaper coverage and people are talking about like, maybe this guy's actually onto something. So his his success rate has now so high that he jumps his fee from $50 to $1,000. Whoa. And it was starting to work. It went on this way for a decade. And with help of his two brothers, Hatfield would go wherever he was needed. He would build this tower mix up his secret blend of chemicals and claim to be able to bring rain for anyone willing to pay a thousand dollars now he starts to because he's starting to get successful he starts to fancy himself as a kind of a scientist but uh, a gentleman in 1981 writing in nature magazine a writer named richard katz says Aided by weather forecasts and information on local meteorological patterns, these pluviculturists depended on occasional coincidences with the occurrence of natural precipitation to demonstrate the viability of their rainmaking operations. Essentially saying these guys were not bringing about rain themselves. They were just clever enough to read forecasts and they knew enough about meteorology all right. Whatever you could know back in 1915, that they would be able to say, yeah, I can bring rain, but that they were just smart enough to see that rain was coming when other people couldn't. So this brings us back to now to 1915. And the city of San Diego is hosting what they called the Panama, California Exposition. And they knew that they were going to have thousands upon thousands of tourists who were coming to San Diego. And it was going to be a wave of international visitors. And it had been a dry year and they wanted this particular reservoir filled up because they wanted these international tourists and potential investors, people who might buy land or invest in other ways in San Diego. They wanted to see this city of San Diego that did not, wasn't experiencing any kind of drought. So January 1st, 1916, Hatfield and his brothers begin this process. They build the tower near the reservoir. They mix the chemicals. They release them into the air. And the deal they had struck in December of 1915 was that they would get not a thousand dollars for this they would get ten thousand dollars wow it's a lot of dough if they could fill the reservoir and they did they filled this reservoir may have been a dry year but whether or not Hatfield's chemicals or a correct weather prediction did the trick he he brought he brought rain they got 50 inches of rain wow and in fact it wouldn't stop (laughs) and january 27th they're actually overwhelmed by water dams and reservoirs are filling they're bursting there are flash floods they carried off barns and houses you know cattle are being (laughs) swept away concrete bridges are collapsing on top of that 
it's there are 50 mile an hour winds and scientists today estimate that it generated three billion gallons of water so was this like el nino or something he just kind of timed it right he tapped into i think what we would now call an atmospheric river okay that that it was just it was just him reading of a weather forecast in ways that other people couldn't but the problem was it didn't stop raining so there were 22 people documented as killed but some estimated as many as 50 people killed and now you're looking at devastation this is 1.5 million dollars in damage that's back in 1916 wow but the event came to be known as hatfield's flood and so rather than solving the problem he's now flooded the city or they're blaming him for flooding the city and he says well, yeah, but you still owe me the $10,000. <laughs> a deal's a deal, I say. I want my ten grand. So he sues. Wow. And they say, well, if you want to fight us for the payment, that means you're getting credit for bringing the rain. That means you're also responsible for all the damage. Clever. So which which is it you want if he if he gets the credit he's gonna have to take responsibility for all the destruction that followed he fought it for a year in court and finally gave up and just slinked away because he also realized that people hated him they blamed him for those deaths they blamed him for the damage to san diego but his fame by this grew And he continued to receive contracts for making rain. In 1929, he tried to stop a forest fire in Honduras. Later, he tried to fill Big Bear Lake in Southern California. But during the Great Depression, he had to return to work as a sewing machine salesman. And his wife divorced him. And he died in 1958, where he took to the grave with him his chemical formula for bringing rain and swindling entire towns like the city of San Diego. Ironically, he is buried at Forest Lawn in Glendale, where Jethro and I have actually (laughs) driven around and looked at that headstones of famous and obscure people. I, I love that. And had we known when we did that a few years ago, JG, that we could have found Charles yeah. Hatfield's grave. And Lindsay's not joking when he says this. Every time I go to Los Angeles, whenever I'm in L.A., we uh, we get together and inevitably we end up at that cemetery in Glendale. <laughs> we loves us a creepy cemetery. Walt Disney is buried there. Uh, some of the other Michael Jackson people. is Michael Jackson. there. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart. Don't they give you like a uh, like a map to the stars graves at the uh, gate? They have a map. I don't believe they point out the the individual stars, but as you know, there are so many. I think it's is it findagrave.com you can you can find yes virtually anybody that you're that you're looking for. So next time we go there JG we have to find Charles Hatfield the guy who convinced San Diego that he could bring rain. <laughs> I love that idea. Never got paid. This came from the Daily Beast, Nature Magazine and Wikipedia. The entire time you're telling the story, I'm picturing him much like the wizard in The Wizard of Oz before they actually go to Oz. You know, he's got that little wagon and he's sitting out there making some right. coffee, talking exactly. to Dorothy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the kind of guy I picture. Those old-timey charlatans. Love the old-timey charlatans. The Shallow End lands on your phone once a week. We appreciate you uh, picking it up and giving it a listen. 
We always love to hear from you. We also appreciate the fact that you appreciate that it lands on your phone in such a way that it doesn't do any damage to it. It's a gentle land. That's some precise engineering on our part. Not as easy to do as you might think, kids. We'll see you guys next time. Make good choices. Your life may depend on it. So concludes another episode of The Shallow End with Schnebly and Toff. We thank you for listening. Oh, be a dear, would you? Please subscribe to this podcast, give these boys a five-star rating, and think of something nice to say, even if you have to make something up. And visit us online at shallowendpodcast.com. All content copyright 2022. Misuse of this podcast may result in serious injury or even death. Follow all label directions. This offer void in Fort Kent, Maine, and Tucson, Arizona. And parts of Orlando. Don't ask. Just trust us. Okay, gotta go. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.